Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Steve Oaken. Great to see you back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mr. COVID. Happy New Year, Neil. <laughs> Moving on, Steve. Big deal. Big announcement this week, Let's of course, it. or a big deal this week. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, a mega trade agreement signed by 15 countries, of course, including Singapore, collectively covers about one third of the world's population. What does it mean for the region and obviously more specifically Singapore? Well, like this is the, as you, it's the world's largest uh, FTA. And look, over time, this agreement is going to address supply chain bottlenecks and resilience in the pandemic era for those countries that are members, including Japan, China, and all 10 countries of, of Southeast Asia. It's going to allow businesses to create more resilient supply chains because you're going to be able to have manufacturing in one country. You can have sourcing in multiple countries. You don't have to worry about meeting specific rules of origin. And, and having different customs duties. So it is it's a big deal, especially on the manufacturing side, a little less so on the services side. So this is really a, a trade agreement uh, in Asia for Asia. Steve, when we look at RCEP, it's, you know, it's been talked about, as you mentioned, for many years now, over a decade. And ASEAN has really been struggling to try to get the rules lined up for everybody to agree on because of the differences in economies in, in the countries in just within ASEAN. What were the sort of final things that got this over the goal line? What were the countries uh, saying anyway that, that they believed would be the best uh, reason to go forward? Well, I mean, I think the t- two things. One was that this is a lower standard agreement than something like the, the CPTPP, you know, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That is a very high level to meet when it comes to the environment, when it comes to labor, when mm-hmm. it comes to opening up your markets more comprehensively. This doesn't do that. So this, this takes into account that there are members of RCEP like like Laos and Cambodia that would never be able to meet the, the requirements of TPP. So that's one difference is that it, it's somewhat of a lower standard, but it, it's also important to be integrated. And when you have the TPP with some Southeast Asian members like Singapore and Vietnam and Malaysia who are members, but Philippines, Thailand and Laos, Cambodia who are not, they needed to get a trade agreement too. So this is an important trade agreement. It also recognizes while the standards aren't quite as high as TPP, they're still significant when it comes to reducing customs duties, when you have one set of rules, and it also has phasing. So a country like Singapore is going to have to implement some things immediately, whereas a country like Cambodia might take 10 years or 20 years even to meet some of those agreements. So it takes that into account, Glenn, which is why it got past the finish line. And Steve, what do we see or what do you see from a political perspective here that, you know, this has been widely seen as a geopolitical victory for China. And of course, we've talked about many, many times on this show the supposed waning economic influence of the United States in this particular region. Do you see that yourself, that this is a kind of geopolitical victory for China? It's a geopolitical victory for Asia, in which, of course, includes China. And the U.S. has waning influence because the U.S. chooses not to participate in trade agreements because the U.S. withdrew from the TPP because the U.S. hasn't engaged in the types of digital trade agreements that it should be engaging with in Asia. So the waning influence is not because China's doing better. It's because the U.S. uh, has pulled out. This is a big deal, Neil, for those reasons, because this is the first trade agreement in which China, Japan, and Korea are all members. So you're going to see this integration in North Asia. You're going to see 
uh, more trade coming down between Southeast Asia and China than you would have otherwise. Don't forget, of course, it includes Australia and New Zealand as well. So yeah, this is a big win politically, but it's not because of what China's done so much is, is what the U.S. is not doing. Steve, let's move forward uh, to the January 6th anniversary of the storming of the Capitol in the U.S. uh, just a year ago. Tumultuous time in the U.S. on that day, of course, and since the Democrats trying to get this, their report put together, they're having their hearings, etc. Republicans are stonewalling it. Where do we stand now? Uh, Biden came out with some very strong words on the anniversary against Trump and the whole situation. Where where are we at now that we're two days past the anniversary and we can look back on it uh, with a little bit of uh, clarity? Well, I'm telling you, Glenn, what what is utterly depressing and frightening uh, is that we're actually worse off a year after the the violent attack on democracy than we were on that day, that a second attack, if it were to come, is more likely to succeed. I'm not saying it will come or that it's, it's likely to come, but if it does come around the 2024 election, it's more likely to succeed. And that's because... Why do you say that, Steve? It's because what has occurred in the past year is that you have had attacks on democracy in the states that are succeeding, right? So what happened on January 6th is that President Trump called his supporters to Washington to stop the steal and save America. And they were to march to the Congress and to demand that Congress not certify the election. That is not possible under the Constitution. Under the Constitution, the the Congress cannot substitute its judgment for what the states have certified, and the states follow, right, whoever gets the most votes wins. And it's because you had Republican governors like those in Arizona, in Georgia, and you had Republican secretaries of state, the one in Georgia, who certified that their state voted for Joe Biden, That's why Joe Biden became president. And now many states are changing their laws where the state legislature can overrule the secretary of state and say, no, there was fraud. Even though you certified the election, we're going to give it to Donald Trump and not Joe Biden. And, you know, I say that was the rematch in 2024. When that certification goes to Congress, Congress can't do anything. So what is going to so you're going to now have a system in place in states that never existed before where there can be a partisan overruling of state officials on who won an election. And that's why we're worse off today than we were a year ago, because these attacks on democracy are continuing. They did not stop on January 6th. Fascinating. And yet Singapore wasn't invited to the recent (laughs) (laughs) democracy summit. But let's not go there. But on that point, on that point, uh, Steve, some statistics here that I find absolutely mind boggling. A year on, two thirds of Republican voters still believe that the election was stolen. Two thirds, despite 60 different court judgments ruling otherwise. And a survey shows that 30 percent of Republicans, this is in The Guardian today, a survey shows that 30 percent of Republicans say that true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. Last point on that, the editor of The New Yorker, publication not known for being hysterical, the editorial said this week discussed the possibility of a second American civil war war. 
This was an editorial in the New Yorker talking about a second American civil war. Are these commentaries, analysis, hysterical, or is this a real situation? Where's your view on this? Look, it, it's a real situation, and all of those things are unlikely to occur. But unlikely things do occur in history, right? The Titanic was not supposed so, so to So was the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th. That was very unlikely as well, wasn't it? Right, and so you have unlikely events that are very high impact. This happens throughout history. And so that is why it is so important to talk about it. It's so important to say what is going on. And what is lacking is that we're not having a bipartisan agreement on this. There was supposed to be a bipartisan commission to investigate January 6th, like we had in the United States after 9-11. We had Democrats, Republicans Mm -hmm. came together, said, what happened? Why did it happen? And what are we going to do to prevent it again? We were supposed to do the same on January 6th. The Republican leader in the House refused to cooperate. And so you have two Republicans who have been ostracized basically from the party, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, cooperating. You have Republicans stonewalling this select committee, but you have others who are cooperating. Supposedly, Vice President Pence's office is very much cooperating with this. So let's hope this January 6th committee can come out with some recommendations that people on both sides can agree need to get done so that whoever wins in 2024, be it the Democrat or the Republican, is recognized as the true leader of the United States by the entire country, which is not happening, Neil, as you pointed out right now. Yeah, just briefly, there's a there's a, a, a fantastic black comedy on on HBO Go right now, HBO Plus, called The Second Civil War. And it was from 1997, a black comedy made for HBO about states seceding from the U.S. and National Guard and militia taking over and fighting against the central government. It, it was as frightening as it was funny. James Earl Jones and Dennis Leary and, and a bunch of other folks uh, in that movie. So if you're if you're looking to see how art may imitate real life, I would suggest that that might be one movie that actually has a little bit more truth than uh, what we'd like to admit to at, at this moment in time. All right, let's uh, let's go on to another uh, story. Our final story today, and it is one that is absolutely true and happening right now, and that is Djokovic down under and uh, tennis. Wow, debacle that's happening with the Open there. Uh, set this up for us, Steve. There's there's a lot going on. There's a lot to unpack with this, and now a Czech tennis player whose visa has also been canceled. All right, I'll good. This, this is not hard to set up. Like, the Australian Open's only been happening since 1905, right? This is not news <laughs> that there is going to be a tennis event, a Grand Slam in Australia in January every year. Everybody knew this was coming. Everybody knew <laughs> that, that, that Djokovic is notoriously not vaccinated um, and mm. that he says it should be your personal choice. Everybody knew this was coming. The Australian you know, tennis set up an exemption process. Djokovic applied for an exemption. He received that exemption. And then the Australian government has stepped in and overruled its own people. And that is where we stand right now. And so the question is, should they have done this? Should they have overruled what should have, you know, what was, what was granted to Djokovic? So that's question number one. And then question number two is, you could say, should this even be a medical issue? Should it, should an exemption be given to him? Because, look, he has won, you know, as many Grand Slams as anyone alive. There's three people who've won 20. He's one of the three. Of course, it's, it's better and dollar the others. He has won the last three. He's won nine of these Australian Opens. If he wins here, this is going to be the biggest Australian Open probably 
in probably a, a decade or so in terms of coverage and the like. And so should he have been if, if granted an exemption? I think you could have made that point clear that we want him here and let's put him in different protocols. They didn't do that. Instead, they went the, the medical route and now they're backtracking. And I think the Australian government looks way worse than Djokovic. I, I think this is a fiasco. It's a debacle. You can use whatever words you want. And I don't think any of that should be applying to Djokovic. He didn't do anything wrong in this case. Well, guys, we've got to wrap it up there. Thank you very much indeed, Steve. Try not to break anything else with your family. I'll be seeing you next week, so I look forward to that. Thanks as always. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.